Welcome, friends. You are listening to the podcast for First Christian Church in Fort Myers, Florida. To learn more, join us online at fccfm.org. It is a blessing to be able to share God's Word with you today. Thanks for joining us. We started this series last week called Spiritual Things, and we realized that everything's spiritual, but there are some things we don't talk about a lot. And so last week, we talked about heaven and hell. Next week, we're going to talk about angels and demons and then the Holy Spirit and baptism. But this morning, we want to talk about the book of Revelation. And I told you last week that I will tell you everything you need to know about the book of Revelation. I want to key on the word need. Not everything you want to know, but everything you need to know about the book. Um, In the movie... National Treasure, there's a scene where they find the map, but they can't make out exactly what the map means until they find a certain pair of glasses. And with those glasses, every time they flip down another lens, they get to see more of the map or they see it more clearly. This morning, I just want to give us some lenses to look through when we read the book of Revelation because this is an important book. And usually we fall on far ends of the spectrum when it comes to the book of Revelation. There are some people like they live and breathe it every day. They are infatuated with it. And it's just all they ever want to read. And then there are some Christians who go, it scares me to death. I don't want to hear any more about it. I don't, you know, it's, it's hard. I don't want. And so we make excuses for never reading it. And yet what we need to understand, it is one of the 66 books of the Bible. And it is just as important as any other book, but it is not more important than any other book. And so we have to be careful when we read it. I hear people sometimes say, oh, we need this now more than ever. No, that's a misunderstanding of the book of Revelation. We don't need that book now more than ever. It's always been needed since God had John write it and since it's been part of the Bible and since those generations have come. So we need to be careful about how we approach it and how we read the book But it's an important book. It's the final chapter of God's story. And as much as we want to know in the beginning, and we read the book of Genesis, we should want to know the book of Revelation. It would be like reading the story of Sleeping Beauty and skipping the chapter where the prince kisses her and wakes her up. If we don't read Revelation. Because we don't know how it turns out if we don't read it. So it's important. But, but I, I want to give us some lenses to walk through. And so I want to read the first six verses this morning. If you have a Bible or have it on a phone or something. And then we're gonna talk about how do we look at this book? How does God want us to view this book? So let me read the first six verses. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to a servant, John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I love this next verse. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. That's me this morning. (laughs) And he blesses all who listen to its message. That's you this morning. And obey what it says. Hopefully that's all of us this morning. For the time is near. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who was always was, who is still to come, and from the sevenfold spirit before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. He's the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead, the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He's made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. 
And then in verse nine, he tells us a little more about what's going on. He says, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. This was written, most scholars agree, about 96 AD while John was exiled on the island because of persecution. That word persecution we need to be careful with because I hear it once in a while from us and we say, well, we're just so persecuted as Christians. We've gotta stop saying that because we are not. Your, your desires may not have been met in some area or your preferences may not be met, but we as American Christians have never been persecuted like the church was being persecuted in that time. In fact, it's believed that this was probably the three decades of the most persecution the church had ever had. On the day of Pentecost, the church was born, and uh, we know next to the next 30 years, the church did really well. We read about that in all the, the letters where Paul's traveling, and he's planting churches, and he's doing his missionary trips, and, and, and by uh, the 60s A.D., most everybody in the world at least knew what a Christian was, or knew about Christ, or knew about the way. Then in 54 AD, Nero became the emperor of Rome. And he was the emperor for 14 years. And in 64 AD, he wanted to do some renovation to the city. And he thought he was gonna do a little controlled fire and then build back the city because he wanted to be an architect. But it got out of hand and he blamed the Christians. And it became open season on Christianity. So he was emperor for four more years while that went on. In 69, Vespasian became emperor of Rome. And it got worse. He was the guy that would put Christians in the arena and turn wild animals loose on them. He was the guy that would use Christians as food for his zoo animals. He was the guy that would take Christians and dip them in tar, hang them in a tree, and set them on fire as lights in his gardens for his parties. In 81, Domitian became emperor of Rome. And it got worse. He was the first emperor, even though emperor worship had been a part of Roman culture, he was the first emperor to actually say, I'm a God, and if you don't worship me, then you can't be a part of culture. So Christians suddenly found that they could not sell their goods, their farm goods, the things they were doing. They couldn't own a business. They had no voice in community. And if they were charged with anything, whether they were guilty or not, they immediately were given the most strict sentence that could be, that could be given to them. That's what Christians were living under when John writes this to them. And he writes to them living in 30 years of this intense persecution, a book of hope and a book of encouragement. So how we look at this passage, this, this uh, section, this book, how we look at this very much has to be through an understanding of what was going on and why he was writing this. So a few lenses let me give you that we need to look at when we're looking at the book of Revelation. Lens number one, we need to look through the lens that prophecy always has a purpose. There are four purposes to prophecy when it's written in the Bible, and that's Old Testament prophecy, that's the book of Revelation. It's to warn, to explain, to convict, or to encourage. And sometimes it does all four at the same time. In fact, you can look on almost every page in the, in the book of Revelation and you will find those four. For example, the next page of my Bible is chapter two. Chapter two, verse five, there's a warning. Look how far you've fallen, turn back to me. If you don't repent, I'll remove the lampstand. There's a warning. Verse nine and 10, there's an explanation. I know you're suffering. 
I know the blasphemy of those who oppose you. I know they say they're Jews. Don't be afraid what you're about to suffer. So he's explaining to them what's going on and why they're suffering. There's conviction or to convict us. And in verse 17 of the second chapter says, anyone who has ears, you need to listen to the spirit. You need to be convicted by this and change your ways and do what it says. There's also encouragement in verse 18. He says, and anybody who listens and is victorious, I'll give some manna from heaven and I'll give them a white stone with their name on it. I mean, and we use all of these kind of things, especially if you're a parent, you use prophetic language all the time to your children. You warn them, you explain to them, you hope that convicts them what you say, and you hope you can encourage them by like, well, if you don't do your homework, if you don't clean your room, here's what's going to happen. Or you say, man, you did such a great job. I love how well you did in class and how well you did that. And we prophetically use those kind of terms for the situation they're in. And we need to see when we're reading Revelation, every page we read, if we read it to that filter, we begin to understand what he's trying to do. Is he trying to warn them, convict them, encourage them? What's he trying to do in this? That's the first lens. The second lens we need to understand is that apocalyptic, and I'll say that word wrong several times this morning. Say it real fast three times. Apocalyptic literature is different. It's not something that we use in our culture, but it was something that was prevalent there. We see it sometimes in the book of Daniel, a few other books, but that kind of writing was different than the way we think. We think in our culture very linear. We think very chronological. We like B to follow A. We like everything. And if it's out of order, it bothers us. And so when we read a story, we love the book of Exodus because it says this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And we can follow right along. Apocalyptic literature was written with images to prompt thinking that in no way were meant to be chronological or linear in any way. In fact, it was like if you walked down a street and in every window there was a different big screen TV showing a different show. And you just walked down and you were constantly seeing. In fact, if you read, watch how often John goes, and then I saw, and then I turned and saw, and then I saw, and then I saw. And what I see here has nothing to do with what I see over here. And it's all these different stories with different purposes. In fact, if you just start through there, uh, once we get past the letters to the churches, then in chapter five, there's a lamb that opens a scroll, and then there's a bunch of seals, and then there's a, a trumpet that, that scares people, and then there's an angel with a scroll, then there's two witnesses, then in chapter 12, there's a woman and a dragon, and it's just image after image that if we try to think, oh, this must happen, then this must happen, we will totally be frustrated. In fact, it's... Uh, if we can begin to understand apocryphal, what it was for, we begin to see maybe what some of the images, and, and at best it's speculation. We don't know what they mean. Most scholars, or most scholars that I read, uh, chapter 12 is the Christmas story. We're 10 weeks away from Christmas, but I promise you, when you sit down with your children, <laughs> you'll not, let's open and read the Christmas story. Chapter 12, Revelation. And there was a woman who was expecting a child. And she was great with child and she was about to deliver and a red dragon swept in and it was right in front of her and it was gonna kill the baby. But God came in and he saved the woman and he saved the baby and he cast out the dragon. And we're like, whoa, that's got some energy. And apocryphal writing was meant to give emotion to stories. And so now you think about who he's writing to. These people were struggling. And he says, there's this dragon. And what do they immediately think? Oh, remember Mary? And Herod, and the baby, and the message is, 
God took care of them and God will take care of you. And yet there's the energy. It's like the pep talk that a coach gives at halftime. You know, you, if you're a coach, you're in athletics and, and you're down at halftime, the coach doesn't come in and go, okay, guys, get at it. He tries to remind them. It's the same way we do with our kids. When they're going through a hard thing, what do we say? We remind them of a time that they got through it before. Even to our friends, we say, hey, remember the time when this happened? You remember how God stepped in and God provided and God provided? Remember how that went? That's what this writing is for, these people. He writes to them and he says, hey, remember the time that this happened? And it's an encouragement to them. It's not linear. Lens number three. And this is my favorite of the lenses. This, I think, makes the most difference. We need to, when we read Revelation, to know that it is written for us, but not to us. It is written for us, but not to us. And we look at all of the rest of the Bible this way. We read the book of Exodus, and there's all this stuff about animal sacrifice. And we don't think, oh great, now we gotta bring a goat Sunday and Gary's gonna kill it on the stage. It never crosses our mind that it's to us, but there are principles of worship in the book of Exodus that are for us. A couple weeks ago, Matt preached on Philippians about the two ladies that were arguing, you know, that wasn't written to us. We didn't even think, well, that was written to us, but it was written for us because there are principles about when we need to zip it and the way we talk to each other. In Corinthians, Paul was writing about don't, meet, don't eat meat offered to idols. And we go, we don't do that. That's not to us, but there are principles of putting other people's needs ahead of our own that are for us. When we read the book of Revelation, it is not written to us, but there are some great things in there that are for us. And so we need to look at it through that lens. Because when we start thinking it's written to us, we start looking at the wrong things. I can't remember his name. I was going to give him credit. I read a pastor this week who said in Revelation, the plain things are the main things and the main things are the plain things. He said, when we start trying to figure out fancy things and we start trying to speculate about what the dragon meant and about what this meant and that meant, we lose sight of the main thing of Revelation. It is a book of encouragement for people that were struggling. And so we need to understand as we read, this was not to us, but it's definitely for us as a book of encouragement. Lens number four, we should focus on who and how, not what and when. Who's the church supposed to be? It's in the book of Revelation. How are we supposed to live? It's in the book of Revelation. Who can we count on in tough times? It's in the book of Revelation. How will the world end? It's in the book of Revelation. The how and the who is what we should focus on. The what and the when is merely speculation. And nobody can give you an answer. And it's fun to think about, and it's fun to have Bible studies occasionally that, that we talk, well, I read this author. In fact, I looked this morning I Googled Revelation timeline. There's 9,475,000 of them on Google, if you want to look, because it can become divisive when we focus on what and when instead of who and how. There's, there's a, another word that's hard for me to say, millennialist, but there's a millennialist philosophy that some people, they get all attached to, to this, their idea. So pre-millennialist, millennialist, Think that Jesus is going to come back for seven years and then he's going to take everybody to heaven. Then he's going to come back and reign for a literal thousand years and then there's going to be judgment and then there's going to be eternity. And it might be. Then there's post millennial list 
who believe that, that the thousand years is not really a thousand years, but it's a time period. And so Jesus is going to come back for a thousand years, and then there's going to be a big battle, and then there's going to be judgment, and then there's going to be heaven. And then there's amillennialists who believe that the thousand years is not a definite thousand year period, but it's a period of time. And then Jesus comes back and uh, it started when he resurrected. So that thousand years, we're in that period right now. So I, and there's panmillennialists who just say, I don't know, but I know it pans out in the end. And, and that's so, but here's the thing. Any one of those could be right. And it's okay to speculate on those. But when we take a stand and say, this is how it is, then we're in danger. Because we are divisive. And it's not the main thing. And so we need to be careful. Speculation is okay, but we need to be focused. When we read the book of Revelation, it's who and how, not what and when, that we need to focus on. And we do that because we like to speculate, don't we? I mean, we can, set, we can have long conversations about more meaningless things, can't we? You know, but you know why speculation is fun? Because it's easier than surrender. We can sit for hours in a Bible study and speculate about, man, the Antichrist has been more people. That's how long I've lived. I know there's at least five or six Antichrists since I started, you know, old enough. And it was Cuba, then Russia, and Stalin. And, and I mean, it's, it just goes on and on. Everybody speculates. And it's fun to sit around and go, well, maybe it is. Maybe it is. But instead, we should be going, wait, doesn't he say something to those churches about surrendering our lives and living for him and being ready when he comes back and making sure our friends know Jesus? And surrender's tougher than speculation. And so we just need to be careful that we don't spend our time speculating instead of surrendering ourselves to what God calls us to. Lens number five, it's God's clock, not ours. In that beginning, he said, I'm coming soon. If you go to Revelation 22, the back of the book, Verse seven, this is Jesus. Hey, look, I'm coming soon. Verse 12, hey, look, I'm coming soon. Verse 22, yes, I'm coming soon. And we go, soon, soon is relative on God's timing, on God's clock. But to those Christians, again, how do we, what do we look to? Who was it written to? Those first 30 or 40 years after their church and they're really suffering to hear Jesus say, I'm coming back soon. Had to be an encouragement to them. An encouragement to hold on. And it should be the same encouragement to us, but I think we get a little lazy about accepting that Jesus might come back today or he might come back tomorrow. And instead of encouraging, sometimes maybe we're a little frustrated. That was happening in the early church. In fact, Peter wrote to some Christians about thinking that maybe Jesus had already come back and they missed it. John and I experienced that once in a while. When we're in the office and everybody else is gone and we don't know where they are. <laughs> you think it happened? I don't know. <laughs> Nobody answers their phone. Nobody told us where they were going. It's just us. And it's like, but that's what was going on. And the early Christians, so Peter writes to them, and here's what he says in 2 Peter 3. You must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promises, some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. 
looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire. The elements will melt away in flames. But we're looking forward to the new heavens and a new earth, he's promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. I so love that new song Sean taught us this morning. That could become one of my favorites about that day. And so, dear friends, Peter goes on, while we're waiting for these things to happen, dear friends, while we're waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. God's clock isn't our clock. And the fact that Jesus said, I'm coming soon, should be an encouragement to the intensity of how we live our lives. Back in the last century when I started preaching here, it was, it was 1995, so it was, appreciate Matt pointing out how long ago that was, but uh, a friend of mine who was a pastor at a church in, in Louisville, Kentucky, and just a super mentor, kind of encourager, but he called me and he said, I'm so excited that you're going to be preaching there. And he said, we come down there on vacation two or three times a year, and I'm going to come in some Sunday and see you. Man, that's the last thing you want, you know? And, and being a church in Florida, you don't know, but there's times where I'm standing up here and I look out and I go, why are they here? And that's like, these are guys who are legends to me in ministry, and they'll be sitting out there, and they don't tell me before, I don't see them in the lobby, I just look out and go, oh, but what it did for me, him telling me that, that I may be there some Sunday, it made me a better preacher. Because every week when I thought, well, maybe that's enough, I'd go, no, he might be here this week. Or every week when I thought, have I spent enough time on that, I'd go, no, I better go over Saturday and go through that some more because he might be here this week. Now, God says, I'm coming soon. What should that do to us? And unlike my friend who's never been here, and I hope he's listening this morning, <laughs> you'd be welcome. God will come back. And that should make us better. It should make us more focused how we live. Because he might come back today. I feel like uh, talking to people in the lobby before the ser first service, multiple generations We've said, you know, I don't know if Jesus will come back in my lifetime, but I think he will in the next lifetime. And I realize there's a lot of people that think that way, and maybe we should. Maybe we should be planting that seed for the next. You know, Jesus is gonna come back someday. But it also should make us turn it up because the lens number six that we need to look through is that salvation is more important than comfort. And when we read Revelation sometimes, we go, why doesn't God do something these people were going through amazing things that we cannot even begin to imagine to be a Christian. What a cost we Why doesn't God do something? Because salvation is more important than comfort. And those people, their faithfulness. There was a census done in Rome in 351 AD. 51% of the Roman Empire was Christian. Just 250 years after this tremendous persecution. Why? Because the people that read the book of Revelation that it was written to said, Jesus might come back tomorrow and my friends don't know him. And they turned it up and they made a difference 
And there was 350 million people that were Christians in 351 AD because they understood, yes, I wish I wasn't persecuted. Yes, I wish it wasn't so hard. But every day that Jesus doesn't come back is a day that I have to tell my friends. And salvation is more important than comfort. Do you realize that if we said, well, I wish Jesus would come back, that we would be the last ever? Do you realize if Jesus came back 100 years ago, I'm trying to look at the crowd, I could say 90 years ago, but some of you maybe are past that. If, if Jesus came back 100 years ago, none of us would be here. We would not have gotten to enjoy this life. We would not have gotten to experience eternity in heaven. But someday he's gonna come back and we won't have that opportunity anymore. This is a great book. We don't need to fear it. Uh, Linda and I on our road trip, I told you about last week, we just turned it on to listen to it. And I found that was actually easier for me than reading it. My mind does not, when I'm reading, I'm, I, I read rather fast and my mind's all over the place when I try to read. But listening to it really made a difference. And he says, blessed are those who read it. Blessed are those who hear it. Don't be afraid of it, but make sure when we read it, we look through the right lens and we understand why it was given to us. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. <laughs> forgive me and forgive us for sometimes the negative things we've said about the book of Revelation. It's your word. It's the final chapter. How dare we? How dare we belittle it? God, protect us from bad teaching. God, protect us from the master of distraction, Satan, who would love for us to get caught up in what and when instead of how and who. So God, I pray that it becomes one of our favorite books because it tells us, it tells us that, that you win, that you are faithful. Yes, life is hard, but there's victory in those of us who follow you. So Father, we take that with us today. And we live in that victory that you promise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We pray this message has been a blessing to you. If we can pray for you or encourage you in any capacity, please let us know at FCCFM.org.